My name is Erin Kenny. I am a registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. Cool. Right. Hello, Julie. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. I am so excited for this topic today on cancer and nutrition. But first, I'd love to hear from you and how you even got into this field and what you do on a daily basis. Well, it's kind of funny because at first I was, you know, in graduate school, I didn't do dietetics as an undergrad. So I was trying to catch up with stuff. So I was in graduate school and <laughs> trying to figure out which research areas I wanted to go into. And I was pretty much like, no, cancer, I don't, I'm not interested. No, thanks. <laughs> but of course, then I start working and what happens to everybody is someone in your life gets diagnosed with cancer and all of a sudden it's way more relevant than it was before. So um, for me, that was like a family friend and my grandmother, both getting diagnosed with blood cancers around the same time. And I was just starting working in uh, in dietetics or nutrition, doing like uh, diabetes and things like that. And then a position came open at the cancer center for the health system I was working for. And I was like, well, now I care. <laughs> you know, now that's of interest to me. Mm. So I moved over and worked in an outpatient center. Um, and met, and this was sort of right when cancer survivorship was becoming a hot topic. And um, I, of course, met cancer survivors all over the place in my work who were very um, inspiring and their stories were really interesting. And they were really very interested in nutrition um, in a way that was like, oh, yeah, like this is this is something that matters to people. It wasn't just going into patients' rooms and um you know, giving them a 30 minute talk before they leave the hospital. It just felt um, very impactful. And out of that, I started writing cancerdietitian.com. So that was 2007. Um, and I knew, okay, this isn't something that I can do within a hospital system. So I was doing it on the side. And then a position came open at, at Cancer Services, which is where I still am now, which is a community based nonprofit, which just was a much better fit for me. So, um, yeah, the website became part of our survivor programs at Cancer Services, and here we are, and it's 15 years later. So it was like a big time warp. <laughs> That's incredible. So what are you? What population are you mostly working with at the moment? Is it cancer survivors? Is it people that are going through treatment? So I pretty much gear towards survivorship. Um, some in terms of risk reduction. So at our agency, I coordinate all of our programs for the community on cancer risk reduction. Um, to make sure people are getting their screenings and, you know, choosing a healthy lifestyle to reduce their risk. And if they're going to be diagnosed, be diagnosed at an earlier stage if possible. Um, but my passion area is really survivorship. If people are having issues during treatment, like I'm happy to give them some tips, but I don't do that day in and day out. And our cancer centers here where I live have uh, outpatient dietitians. So I'm like, they don't, they Patients don't really need me for that part. You know, my expertise is really more in um, kind of the wellness area in nutrition and cancer and helping people figure out how to incorporate healthy lifestyle um, into their survivorship. And for some people, that means 
dealing with the challenges that treatment presented, like if parts of their GI tract have been removed or their GI tract doesn't function as well, um, we can work around that. Um, but for a lot of people, it's, it's really more like reducing anxiety around food because a lot of people upon diagnosis of cancer just feel like things are out of control. And then food is a place where they can control. And sometimes that gets, I would say, like out of balance um, for their life and that they're sometimes overly focused on foods or misdirected based on, you know, current trends in our culture that might not be evidence-based. And so they've kind of followed some rabbit trail that's not necessary and might not be helpful. So I try to get people on a path of um, mental wellness as well as nutritional and lifestyle you know, health so that they can, I mean, the whole point of, you know, a healthy lifestyle is to enjoy your life. So we got to figure out how to, how to reach that goal, um, in our nutrition plans. So. Yeah. Very relatable in terms of gut health in my practice. Like, you know, you can't just hyper-focus on food, especially not addressing the mental health can really be a huge barrier to progress. So I love that you, you mentioned that. Let's dive into the um, just statistics in general on um, cancer and its relation to nutrition. I mean, do we have research that shows that, you know, cancer and nutrition are related in any way? Yes, although, of course, nutrition research is so hard to do, you know, in humans. It's fine if we want to do it in a Petri dish, but that's not how our bodies work. (laughs) So then the most relevant research, of course, is in humans, and humans don't always cooperate with nutrition studies. So, um, you know, our best estimate, and I always go to the American Institute for Cancer Research because they're the sort of scientific and nonprofit entity that does the most research on diet and physical activity and cancer. So their estimate is that, you know, between 30 and 40 percent of overall cancers in the U.S. could be prevented with healthy lifestyle. So that would include like healthy eating and physical activity. Um, and, but I always tell people like the word prevention is, I I think a weighted sort of term. I prefer risk reduction because, and it's, and when we say these numbers, it's all about the population, like looking at a, the big picture population, we can't tell for an individual, you know, cause there's of course all these genetic factors. So I do kind of use that number as, okay, well, if you could influence your risk by 30 to 40%, you know, with something really simple, like taking a pill, then people would jump all over it, you know? So that's our, that's kind of our current estimate. Yeah. It's a good reminder that research is, it's correlation, not causation, right? So we're, when we're doing any sort of nutrition research, we're not saying that you know, eggs caused high cholesterol. We're saying that there was a correlation between people that ate this many eggs or whatnot. And that's probably the worst controversial example to use. No, no, Um, I think butter. I think, yeah. Okay. So we'll use, (laughs) we'll use butter. So, you know, we're saying that there's a correlation between those who ate more butter and those who had, you know, higher cardiovascular risks, for example, but we're, we can never say, this is what caused this based on research. And that's, you know, that's just how it is, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and as humans, I think that's, uh, that's very frustrating because we would like to have a, like you said, the, the very straightforward, this caused this, and now you can prevent that. And then you have this sense of control, but 
you know, that that's just not real life. Unfortunately. Yes. It's yeah. I think a lot of people, I, I sort of feel like people expect nutrition to be a lot more of a definite science and it is, uh, yeah, more loose. I, I mean, I think it's more patterns of eating rather than individual foods, but then the studies often focus on individual foods because that's easier to ask people about. Right. Um, it's harder to study pattern, you know, overall patterns of eating. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I, I definitely agree with that. And I think that, you know, there's so many other factors that play into the food that we eat, the environment that we eat it in, how it's grown, um, you know, the way we prepare it. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit more on the topic of meat and cancer, because I know that's a very controversial topic and would love to hear your, uh, you know, opinion of the research on that. So let's just kind of brush over some risk factors for, for cancer. Um, I think, you know, things like smoking, um, genetics, those are, uh, definitely what we see in the research, having a family history, um, exposure, exposure to certain viruses like Epstein-Barr, HIV, um, you know, certain environmental factors that they've seen in the research. A lot of these that I looked at were mostly um, kind of increasing the risk of developing childhood cancers more so mm-hmm. than like adult-related cancers. Um, anything that you would would kind of, you know, prioritize here or just kind of stress for the listener of, of what are some of the biggest risk factors that you see um, in the research? Yeah, I think like building the you know, the building blocks of your sort of cancer risk reduction strategy would certainly be not smoking or using tobacco or vaping, um, being physically active. So, so, you know, the smoking things like on the negative side, don't do this, don't do that. On the positive side though, being physically active, eating fruits and vegetables and plant foods in general, like those are like the pretty big key things. Uh, HPV vaccines, I think, are pretty great. Getting annual exams, you know, with your doctor. Um, colonoscopies are huge for actually preventing cancer, where you can, you know, identify a cancer before it becomes a problem and get rid of it. Mammograms, of course, are great for early detection. Um, so those those screening tests for, for the major things. So that would be your mammogram, your colonoscopy, get your HPV vaccine. Um, and then don't smoke, but then the positive lifestyle sides are that plenty of plant foods and as simple as just like eating plenty of fruits and vegetables and finding a way to be physically active. That's fun for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those have a lot more impact than people give credit for. Sometimes we want to focus on some nitty gritty things that I think have probably smaller impact and then lose sight of the simple, big impact things. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And I want to come back to the, the vaping side of things, just because I, I feel like it doesn't get much attention. And people assume that, you know, when we're not smoking, and we're vaping, it's a healthier option. Um, so vaping is, is a big one. So we're talking tobacco, but also THC, like any sort of vaporization into the lungs is, is technically a carcinogen. And I think that's pretty clear in the research, correct? Yeah. And, you know, we all are willing to take some risks. So we'll talk in a little bit about processed meats or whatever. Like we all have things that we love in our life that help give good quality of life. And we are willing to take on the risk that comes with them if they're not the healthiest things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's just a balance. Um, 
So I think for some people, they have to figure that out in their tobacco intake, you know, because once you have that habit, it's so hard to get rid of it that maybe for some people cutting back is is the answer without completely quitting. But from my standpoint, if somebody doesn't already do do an activity that's going to increase their risk, they have to ask why they would start. And so the vaping is, I, I think people got a little bit tricked in the beginning thinking that, oh, well, if I vape, then it's better. Like I'll switch off cigarettes and then I'll go to vaping and that'll be better for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure that we have that, that I don't think that is the conclusion. Um, it's also really early, so it's hard to see long-term effects on your lungs for new things. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think like THC and, uh, you know, cannabis and all the, the oils and all the things around that is super new. And, um, you know, that's not my expertise, but I do think uh, we, I prefer people would focus on, okay, what are the things that are going to help us and that we have pretty strong evidence for? And then the other types of things, they really just need to work with their personal physician to figure out you know, is this a risk that's worth me taking on based on my personal history? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I became a holistic cannabis practitioner, uh, back in 2018, just from kind of similar to you, personal, uh, family experiences with, uh, family members using THC and cannabis for, um, cancer related issues as well as chronic pain, um, and, and it, you know, it was, it was just incredibly helpful from an anecdotal standpoint from, you know, the people that I know and love in my life. And so that was kind of a motivation for me to learn more about it, especially with such a stigma behind it. Um, and, you know, I've done podcasts on that with, uh, you know, different researchers in the endocannabinoid space. So it, it's a, yeah, I mean, it, it can be a very great adjunct, but I, I agree that the research there, I mean, a lot of this is still very new. Um, and you know, the, the focus I think should be on more of the broad stroke type of things, um, for most people, but then looking at these things like cannabis, for example, as a nice tool, um, you know, maybe for things like appetite for a patient going through treatment or things like that, but, you know, getting hyper-focused on little nitty gritty details can maybe get you into a little bit more trouble. I feel, I don't know, maybe, you know, I'm sure you know more than I do, but it seems like the wild west in terms. So, um, yeah, you know, getting product and like, there's very, at least, so I'm in North Carolina, there's very little regulation. There's like ways to get around basically some of the regulation. And I feel like people order stuff on the internet or they go to these pop-up shops mm-hmm. and I'm like, I think that they have no idea what they're getting in yeah. their product. Like their product might not even be whatever the person's claiming because you can't follow the supply line and you don't know how it was grown and there's no regulation. And I, I feel like that's very risky unless you are, you know, tuned in with somebody who knows exactly where it's coming from, how it's processed, that there's no added, you know, the processing isn't adding toxins to the product. Like it, to me, it seems at least in our state where it's not, it's not really used that much and there's not a clear supply line. It, to me, it seems very risky. Um, so anyway, I don't, yeah. I don't remember where you are. <laughs> no, that's, I no. So I'm based out of Boston, um, in, in Massachusetts. And, 
Um, I actually have my own CBD oil products, but all of those products are coming from a small farm. I'm getting every single product tested for mold, heavy metals, pesticides to make sure that there is even the true true yes. product in it, that in there it. even is mm-hmm. any CBD. So I, I am a big advocate for patients if they choose to use those products. Um, you need to be asking for a certificate of analysis, but even then you can't really ensure that you know, someone could make that up, you know, there's right. so much, there's so much room for error and that can be very harmful for people. So I've done webinars and presentations okay. on this to educate consumers because it's, I mean, it's kind of similar to supplement industry, but less regulated, right? I would um, say scarier than the supplement yeah. industry because of the financial and business component that kind of blew up in, mm-hmm. you know, the 2000. 19, I would say is kind of when things started, you know, the black market, it just, yeah, absolutely. I agree. But very helpful for a lot of people if you're getting a good quality product. So that's, that's a whole nother episode that we could dive into. But I love that you, you mentioned um, physical activity. Uh, I think people don't often think of physical activity as being protective of cancer. Um, Oftentimes, we think of it as, oh, it's a good way to, you know, focus on weight management. Some people really love it for mental health benefits. Um, but you know, what is it about physical activity that's so good for cancer? Are you aware about the research? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I can't speak to the specifics, but the links are, you know, clearly with colon cancer risk reduction, breast cancer risk reduction, of course, cardiovascular. And I think it's because you can't tease out like all these complex ways that our bodies work and we all know, okay, well, our bodies work better when we're physically active. Like Mm -hmm. you promote better health in terms of, um, your body composition Mm -hmm. and then your heart is stronger and you know, that affects your whole body. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was actually listening to a, um, podcast from, I think it was Peter Atia. He's really great. Um, you know, really great resource for just research and reviewing so that you don't have to do all the work yourself. Um, But based on the research that I've seen, the benefits of physical activity that are discussed are things like, um, you know, activating autophagy and and program cell death and really help clearing out dead cells. Um, And in addition to that, you know, there's so much research on the benefits of reducing inflammation from physical activity although it is a temporary increase in inflammation, depending on the type of exercise you're doing, um, you know, it really upregulates systems of the body that help to promote more antioxidant production and clearance of old dead cells. And, and you mentioned the mental health component of it, right? And I mean, there's even research that shows that just having better mental health and overall sense of well-being can reduce inflammation and reduce your risk of chronic disease. So more, more reasons just continue to come out you know, add cancer reduction to the risk for right. what, what's so beneficial of physical activity. And I'm like, these all go together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, oh, wow, look, it helps cancer. I'm like, yeah, it probably does help reduce risk of cancer in the exact same ways. Because when we do the things that our body needs to like have a good, strong functioning immune system as much as we can, like there's lots of things out of our control, our environmental exposures and our genetics, but For all the things that are in our control, if we can support our body to function the way it was designed, it's just going to be better overall. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, all those things. Absolutely. Like healthy diet works too. Like they're going to intermingle and work together because it's such a complicated system. It requires Mm -hmm. all these inputs to, to make it function at its best. 
Sure. Absolutely. A well, well-oiled machine, right? <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, specifically colon cancer, just because an area of my focus is gut health. Um, the, the, the play that fiber has in, in colon cancer. And then I do want to kind of dive into the red meat side of things. Cause I mean, I've, I've seen people go vegan because family members had cancer and, uh, you know, should they be doing that? That's a, it's a really great question. So let's start with the, um, the colon cancer and, and fiber connection there. Yeah. So I think that's one of the really clear links between and, um, and also knowing, yes, okay, so fiber intake decreases risk of colon cancer because fiber is good to keep your colon functioning well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the, those of us who, like, went to nutrition school, you're kind of like, okay, duh. <laughs> like, yes, all the foods that are good for you often are also good sources of fiber. So I also like to point out to people, we're not talking about you should take a fiber supplement. I mean, there's nothing wrong with fiber supplement and I do use it sometimes when I need it or whatever. But when we're talking about the reduction in risk for colon cancer from fiber intake, we want that to become from foods that are good sources of fiber, which, hey, turns out fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, the same things we're constantly talking about people should eat more of. So you know, the, the typical American who's like, well, I don't want to eat healthy foods. I just want to get the fiber. And then they want to throw in there like Benafiber or what are those Metamucil like cookies? Like it's not, it's not going to be the same because the fiber that comes with all the other great nutrition that you find in actual high fiber foods, I think ties in. Like it's not the fiber itself. That's the, the beneficial part. Yes. Fiber is important, but it's the fact that the foods that are high in fiber also come packaged with so many other nutrients that are good for you that they all work together, you know, to promote good health. So Mm -hmm. that's my soapbox about, yes, fiber is good for you. I need you to eat it. I need you to eat more of it than the typical American because the typical Americans only having like half as much as they need. (laughs) And I want as much as possible for that fiber to come from food sources rather than, I mean, your fiber fiber cookies. cookies. No. (laughs) So, and the point that you brought up about most Americans are not getting enough. I mean, when I, whenever I do like a food, three-day food diary, most of my clients are getting, you know, sometimes 15 grams of fiber per day, if even that. So for the listeners, um, you know, I hate tracking calories. I hate tracking mm-hmm. macronutrients. I don't think that anyone should be doing that. But if you have no idea, like what you're eating and in terms of fiber, it might be beneficial to just like on a pen and paper kind of setting, just kind of add up during the day, did I get the goal, recommended goal of about 25 to 30 grams of fiber per day? Um, And as Julie mentioned, the food aspect of it is so important. Uh, It would be so nice if we could take an exercise pill or a fiber pill or a longevity pill. Like we're all going to be trying to, you know, meet headlines with this stuff. It's just, it's, it's, but it's never going to be the thing. It's not, it's just, it's not, you're going to have to, make an effort to put um, some planning into your diet. And, you know, the the research even supports this in the terms of beta carotene, right? We know that um, when patients supplemented with high levels of vitamin A, they had a higher risk of lung cancer. But when they ate higher levels of beta carotene from things like carrots or, you know, sweet potatoes, pumpkin, those really rich orange colored foods, they had a reduced risk of lung cancer. So, 
you can actually get into trouble when it comes to supplementation. Julie and I are going to talk a little bit more about this, but you know, this idea that you can just supplement your way, uh, especially into cancer prevention is very dangerous and can actually potentially increase your risk. Yes. That's the bottom line right there. Yeah. <laughs> and supplementation is like consistently studies show you don't need to get your nutrition in pill form and it might be harmful. So try to get those foods. And like, I always use the carrot as an example. Like if you took a carrot and you pulled apart all the nutrients that are in a carrot and put it in a pill, that pill is going to look like a darn carrot <laughs> because you can't just pick and choose the quote good parts of the carrot. Like every part of the carrot is good for you. So mm-hmm. just, and you know, eating carrots is a lot more delicious than swallowing a carrot pill. So. Yes, absolutely. And that <laughs> might, might take time for some people, you know, like if you're used to just, you know, living on more processed foods and you're not someone who's going to reach for a bag of carrots, I always try to encourage people that your taste buds can change. And sometimes it's just exposure and maybe trying something different to pair it with, like a different type of dip. I just sent a client yesterday, like a lot of really fun, like a Greek yogurt tzatziki dip or, you know, a chocolate hummus that you could pair with strawberries. Like there's so many fun ways to to have fun with food. And, And not all of those require you to make them at home. Like the, you know, what we have in stores is increasingly... Um, you know, supporting the demand of patients having less time. So if you, yeah. you know, financially are able to to kind of invest in those, that's a good way to focus on fruit and vegetable intake. But those polyphenols, the the are really a huge benefit to the microbiome. When we look at the research on polyphenols, which, as Julie mentioned, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds. Um, different types of oils like extra virgin olive oil, these um, these polyphenols have been shown to feed the microbiome, increase the diversity of the bacteria that live there, which then can help keep a really healthy immune system because 70% of our immune system is located in the gut, which is what we refer to as the gut-associated lymphatic tissue. And, you know, cancer is, is um, there. there's dysregulation in our immune function, right? We're not able to fight off um, or support whatever this um, change in the cell of the body is going, depending on the type of cancer, obviously. But um, the gut is a huge part of that because of its connection to immune function. Yeah, so we covered the fiber thing. And so then there's the meat thing. <laughs> so um, there are, so yes, there are some links between meat and colon cancer specifically. It is not that uh, meat is linked to all cancers in terms of risk and different types of meat have different levels of risk, I guess you would say. So um, red meat is does increase risk of colon cancer, but it depends on how much you eat. So the current recommendation is no more than I think it used to be 18 ounces. Now it's like 12 to 18. And I'm like, what kind of recommendation is that? That's confusing. So whatever. I just still say no more than 18 ounces a week of red meat. And when I work with clients, some people are like, oh, I don't need that much. Like that's not a problem. And other people, because I've given talks in Kansas, ranch land are like, what? Only 18 ounces a week. So it really depends on people's just regular, but but we're not here to say you should never eat red meat. Like, I think 18 ounces a week is actually pretty generous um, mm-hmm. in terms of if you like red meat, then you can have that red meat like two, th- three times a week. 
-hmm. The processed meats like bacon, sausage, um, those don't have sort of a threshold where they figured out, oh, okay, like once you cross this amount, then your increase in cancer risk goes up enough that we want to tell you not to. So the current recommendation for those processed meats is to limit them, which is a harder place, I think, for a lot of people to be because they're either like, well, I love bacon, so I'm just going to pretend that that recommendation doesn't exist. Or other people who are like, well, I don't really care for processed meat, so I'm going to just never have it because clearly it's bad for you. Um, And so part of what I do is help people realize when we say processed meat increases risk for colon cancer, we're not saying like eat a piece of bacon and you're going to get colon cancer. (laughs) Like there's an incremental risk. And it's pretty small, um, but it does exist. So then you have to kind of figure out what risk you're comfortable with. If bacon makes you happy, like you have certain recipes that would never be the same without bacon, or you are just like, no, I love pancakes, eggs, and bacon, and I have to have it every Saturday, you know, that's worth considering. Um, And so I just try to work with people like, well, what makes sense for you? And it's, I mean... Quite honestly, it's the same thing with alcohol. Uh, we know alcohol is a carcinogen. It, you know, there's no safe level of alcohol intake that that is doesn't increase risk for cancer. It's just sort of like, well, alcohol is not good for you. So, but plenty of people figure out how to drink alcohol in moderation. So, figuring out what you know what level. Um, people do not have to go vegan to have a health, you know, cancer preventive diet. If they want to, that's a perfectly fine option. So like I tell people that you can sort of choose your own adventure on this spectrum of, you know, plant-based eating. Plant-based does not mean vegan. Plant-based means eat lots of plants. If you have meat along with your plants, dairy, eggs, cheese, whatever, that's your choice. And as long as you're consuming it in a moderate amount, I'm fine with that. But if you're somebody who's like, no, I don't really need those things. They don't bring that much to my flavor palette. I want to go vegan for whatever reason. As long as they're approaching it from like a positive mindset and it's something that they enjoy, I'm good with that. But I'm not good with people saying, oh, I have to eat vegan because I watched this Netflix documentary that scared the crap out of me. And obviously meat causes cancer. And so I shouldn't have it. And they come and they are like, well, I really miss my steaks and I miss my bacon with my grandkids, you know, just like, that's not a positive approach to your eating. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think people have to be vegan. And if they want to be vegan, they can, or if they're like me and they're like, well, I'm vegan sometimes because I sure do love some vegan recipes, but you know what? I, you know, meat sometimes makes things easy. It is a lot more protein dense. Um, so it just, you know, I'm here to help people figure out what will fit in there. You know, choose your own nutrition adventure plan. That's so important, right? Meeting the client where they are. And um, that's what makes you such a great dietitian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious The you know, the, I've gotten a lot of messages from clients about this new, the World Health Organization classifying processed meats like ham and bacon, salami as a group one carcinogen. Right. Um, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Cause when I, you know, when I get a message like that from clients, I'm, I, I have a similar approach to you where it's like, you know, again, when we talk about nutrition research, it's, it's, we're, we're saying there is a 
correlation um, between, you know, consumption and outcome. Now, when we look at the actual compounds in these types of meats, the processed meats, charring them, um, cooking them at high heat, what happens to these proteins, the heterocycline amines, you know, we do know that those compounds are carcinogenic. So when I see a, a you know, a comment like that from a client, I, I, you know, what, what is your response to that? I just think people are, they just don't know how to interpret that interpret that information. So yes, you know, (laughs) it's a class one carcinogen. Okay. That means for sure it causes cancer, but then it's like, well, so there's a component in there that causes cancer. How much are you having of it? And how often are you having it? Like how often are you exposing yourself to that carcinogen Mm -hmm. alcohol class one carcinogen? I always turn it around. Sometimes those you know, I usually know my clients, but sometimes I get random internet people emailing me things that I'm like, they're looking for a fight. I can tell they're like, they just want to come after me. Um, I sometimes will turn it around and be like, yes. And so is alcohol. Do you drink beer? You know? And usually they're like, yeah, they do. So that, and that's kind of where it falls. Um, that, and I did, I, I think I wrote an article when it first came out cause there was all these headlines, right. About like bacon, bacon causes cancer. And I'm like, this is not new people. This is not new. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, and so, but it does. And, and also letting people know, like it can be ranked as that top, like sure fire carcinogen, but then you have to understand what is the increase in risk. Well, if, if a tiny bit of processed meat increases your risk by like 0.3%, that's not very much. Yeah. And it, you might not be comfortable with that and you can cut out bacon if you want to, you know? Okay. Um, I, but it, it's scary. I get that too. It is scary. Um, yeah. so trying to, trying to understand that nuance. Um, but also, <laughs> but also I am yeah, just like, this isn't new. Why is this all of a sudden hitting headlines? Like it's a new thing. Like other people have talked about processed meats before. Sure. And I love that you mentioned it's it's about the interpretation of an understanding. So I just did a little search on like, what is the definition of a group one carcinogen? Um, it, it's just implying it says that there is enough evidence to conclude that it can cause cancer in humans. So again, like when you read these headlines, it's not saying, Julie, if you eat, if you eat bacon this morning for breakfast, you will get cancer. No, the definition of a group one carcinogen is that there is enough evidence to conclude that it can cause cancer in humans just to conceptualize like how we are interpreting that definition. And when that's, you know, presented to us as consumers, it's just important to understand, um, you know, what that means. Right. Yeah. And I, I usually point people like, okay, that is very interesting information for like scientists and healthcare providers to inform their recommendations. But for the general public, they need to spend more time focused on the evidence-based recommendations because those are like public health. They have all the scientists and, you know, super smart people have viewed all the data and they come up with what are the most important things you need to do. Mm -hmm. If someone's putting into place all of these evidence-based recommendations and then they are like, oh, well, let me think about my processed meat intake. Okay, let's talk about that. But I think for a lot of people, they get so hyper-focused on the one thing and then they're not doing any of the other things that we know are really important. And I'm like, you're missing the point. Yeah. Like, you've got to do the big picture things and then you can choose sort of some other strategies on top of that based on these 
things if, if they want to. I like to call those like things. I like to call them acorns. <laughs> like we're like squirrels and we're just like, Ooh, Oh yeah. Oh, like totally. Like we have these little distractions. Um, That's a good metaphor is a good thing to, to kind of conceptualize in terms of those are the things that are actually preventing you from being consistent. We actually talked about this in my group coaching program last night was like, instead of setting January goals, maybe set a list of things that distract you from actually reaching your goals, because that is actually a very, you know, strong awareness that can, that can be the big barrier as to why you aren't actually doing things like drinking water and eating consistent meals and having fun in the kitchen because you went on Instagram today and saw that bacon will give you cancer and you're paralyzed, right? So, you know, there's things that, that are always going to be coming out in the news because that's what the news is, right? It's meant to gain the consumer's attention. Um, Usually it's not for health information. That's not my suggestion for where you should really be getting nutrition information. Obviously a registered dietitian, someone who's very well educated and and well-versed in this type of interpretation of the data and how to actually apply it to the individual, which there's a huge difference between being able to read research and actually how to be able to apply the information that you know in a population in a realistic, healthy, sustainable way. And that's the difference. Yeah. I think that's where, you know, dietitians are are like, no, 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 come on. We we have to take this science and apply it to real life. And that's where we have our best expertise. Yeah. Yeah. We are not a Petri dish. Now, this is going to be important, this topic, because I hear this all the time um, is the, the topic of sugar. And oh my goodness, I got to cut out sugar. I got to cut out carbs um, because sugar feeds cancer, right? So where did this concept come from? And should we be avoiding sugar for cancer purposes? So bottom line, no, you don't have to avoid sugar. Um, common sense says, you know, moderation is a good idea. And how you use it, you know, is important. So it sort of came from a scientific uh, look at how cancer, you know, grows. Um, And so it it came from a place that was legitimate. And I guess, like I always say, well, technically, yes, sugar does promote cancer growth, just like um, glucose promotes the energy growth of any cell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, now, what kind of sets people off is that they get a PET scan with, um, you know, glucose-infused uh, solution, and their cancer, quote, glows. And so what some people, usually like alternative health providers or not-so-science-based um, providers will say is like, oh, well, your cancer grew, and that's the glucose feeding the cancer. So if you just stop eating any source of glucose, then the cancer won't grow. And that's not true because that's not how PET scans work. Um, What's glowing is the fact that the cancer cell is metabolizing that glucose much faster than the other cells in the body. And that's what's shining. Like the glucose is going everywhere. It's not just, you know, I think people hear, oh, sugar feeds cancer. And they think if I drink a, you know, Coke or a soda, all of a sudden, like all the sugar that's in my soda is only going to the cancer cell. (laughs) And it's like, no, that sugar, you know, is broken down just like any other food. It goes into your bloodstream and it goes to every cell of your body and all your cells need glucose, especially, you know, your brain and all those things. It's not that cancer is 
sort of stealing all the nutrients. It's just, it's metabolizing it that much faster. So mm-hmm. I know another dietitian who uses the car as a metaphor. It's like, well, the car needs gas. Cancer cells use glucose like cars use gas, but cancer cells are like with the gas pedal down, <laughs> just like burning that, um, the glucose that, that they get, but they're not getting more than any other cell in your body. Um, But people will hear that and they're like, oh, I have to cut out all sugar. The way our body metabolizes, you know, sugar and carbohydrates and all those things is very complex. So I, I pretty much just tell people that's not, you know, it was an interesting theory that they discovered and they worked through it and they figured out that's not how it works. Cutting out sugar does not make cancer go away. And if it did, we would all be recommending that. Like Mm -hmm. there's no one hiding anything around here. Everybody is working towards a common goal of like, let's figure out how to reduce the impact of cancer and hopefully reduce risk, prevent, cure faster. Mm -hmm. Um, But what, you know, what we do know is that lots and lots of added sugars aren't good for our bodies in general. Mm -hmm. Um, They throw all kinds of things off if you have a habit of eating too much of it. Mm -hmm what is too much. Everybody always wants me to give them rules and I refuse to. <laughs> we, I, I want people to use sugar in, in useful ways, like a little bit of sugar in your coffee, a little bit of sugar in your tea. Oh, look, you're going to get, you know, phytonutrients from coffee or tea. Isn't that so great? Or a little bit of sugar sprinkled in your spaghetti sauce makes that so much more delicious. Or putting a little bit of sugar in like your greens makes them easier for you to eat. Or you want to have chocolate hummus <laughs> with your apples, which is literally what my kid had for his bedtime snack last night. Like apples with chocolate hummus. Turns out there's sugar in chocolate hummus. Yes, there is because chocolate is supposed to taste sweet. And when you're eating sugar with garbanzo beans and cocoa powder, I call that a win. Mm -hmm. So, you know, finding that balance and yes, like you should eat brownies and, and cakes sometimes too. Like life isn't worth living if you can't have, you know, birthday cake or brownies and so, or ice cream or whatever your favorite food is that has sugar in it. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no reason to completely cut it out. I think that in itself is not good mental health. Um, So what I, and you know, I do have people in class who were like, but I like ice cream. So how much is okay? (laughs) And I'm like, well, let's talk about that. Like, how much do you eat at one time? What type of ice cream do you like? What tastes good to you? Like, are you eating it because you're hungry? Are you eating it because you're craving it? Like, why are we eating it? I'm not going to set some kind of rule. Generally, I just say if you do something three times a week, that's a habit. And you have to ask yourself, like, is this a good habit? Is this not a good habit? So, like, are you having ice cream three times a week? That's a habit. I don't know if that's a good habit, you know, every single week. Why are we, is this just because we can't think of something else to eat? Is it because you had a special reason to have it three times this week? That might be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really working through those things. Um, And I do like the intuitive eating framework of, well, let's pay attention to how we feel when we eat it. What do we eat it with? Do we eat it with fruit? Um, Does that make it taste better to us or that doesn't make it right? You know, so um, kind of, it's so nuanced. Um, But 
the bottom line is no, I don't want people to completely cut out sugar. And no, the science does not suggest that cutting out sugar enhances cancer treatment somehow. And that's what I find people will, like I had a friend who was newly diagnosed and she called me and I just remember I was in Costco at the time and she had all the questions, right? She was asking about sugar. She was asking about meat. Um, and some people just, you know, when you're in that place of facing a new diagnosis, you want to do whatever you can. Treatment hasn't started. You feel like I have to do something. That's kind of the zone where I find people will make drastic changes that, um, are not great for their mental health. But here's the other thing. If somebody really wants to cut out all of their simple sugars and they can find a way to do it and be happy and like what they eat, I am also okay with that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah, so the distinction between like added sugars versus apples and, you know, berries and things like that is is a really great um, distinction because when I look at the microbiome research, I mean, you see that the impact, the negative impact that we see on the microbiome is is added sugars, right? And these are people who are consuming large amounts of added sugars per day from, you know, things like sucrose and sodas and candies and cakes and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, nobody should be consuming a lot of those. And it really does come down to a behavioral standpoint and uh, kind of an addition mindset of what what's the rest of the day look like, right? Like, are you not eating enough protein? Are you not eating enough starchy carbs? Um, are you not eating enough fiber? Are you not getting like when you fill your diet with healthy, nutrient dense whole foods, which is what we've also seen in research to be a very cancer preventative diet, a very whole food based diet then I, chances are you're not going to have much room for consuming a lot of these sugar sweetened things. So it's, it's, right. it's relative. I loved how you brought up the habit concept of like, if you're doing it three times a week, that's a habit, explore it, you know, be curious. That is a very healthy mindset to have. Yeah. I think the gut health thing too is really like, <laughs> if you're just throwing a lot of sugar from a soda and nothing else with it. Like that's going to form things like that. You're going to form an environment in your GI tract. But let's say you have like once a week and I live in the South. So people are all about the sweet tea, but I think that's actually spread around everywhere now. Yeah. Um, I'm like, great. You want sweet tea when you have your family over on Sunday afternoons, have it, but you're probably also having it with, actual food. So you're not just like dumping sugar in your stomach all by itself. Like you're throwing other things in too that hopefully have a lot of other nutrition and they balance all those things out. Um, and so usually we're not just eating, you know, lots and lots of simple sugars all by themselves, except in the context, I think of sugar sweet beverages, mm -hmm. um, which is sometimes if people just sip on those all day long or they have them, um, or, you know, those, those, Starbucks mochas versus having just your own brewed coffee from home, which like I get mochas sometimes too. Personally though, because my taste buds are adjusted a certain way, I can't, the regular mochas with all the syrup, I don't like them. And so I think people also notice if they do make some incremental changes, not that you cut out sugar completely, but let's like cut back a little bit. Mm -hmm. I've known people who love sweet tea. They swear they could never go off sweet tea and now they're half and half you know, sweet tea drinkers and they could never drink sweet tea because it's their taste buds have changed. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if you can change your taste buds, 
think about how that's affecting other cells, sure. <laughs> you know, that you don't necessarily notice. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I just, it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. And that's yeah. where I hope people will figure out like, oh, okay, you know, this is important to me versus this isn't. And how can I find a balance where I get what makes me feel good about eating and what makes my body feel good? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that approach. Last topic I wanted to talk about, um, is just supplements briefly. Um, I have re- I recently saw a systematic review of randomized controlled trials on probiotics and them having a beneficial effect, um, by improving things like diarrhea caused by, um, radio chemotherapy or surgery. Um, I saw, you know, some additional research in, um, restoring the intestinal mucosal barrier. So for the lay individual thinking of like the gut lining, right. So having a nice healthy lining where there's no, um, loose, uh, looseness to the cells so that things can stay in the gut where they're supposed to be. Um, probiotics helping to support that and also to basically attenuate or prevent um, some of this oral mucosal damage by chemotherapy as well. So that was very cool to see. I wanted to just bring that up, not necessarily like for anything in particular, but I think what that, when I see stuff regarding probiotics and, and cancer, I just think, you know, duh, like the microbiome is it's where 70% of our immune system is located. Um, do probiotics cure cancer? I would probably say no. Um, but just the, the benefits of consuming fermented foods, right? Things like miso and sauerkraut and kimchi, kefir, um, or if you're someone that, you know, does really well with a supplement form for some reason, then that can be a really great addition to your diet. Are there any other supplements that um, you know of based on research that could actually reduce risk of cancer or um, ones that you would never recommend taking during cancer treatment, for example? Is there anything that you've... So the antioxidants probably have the most data behind not doing them, like high-dose antioxidants during treatment. Because if you think about how treatment works, specifically radiation, like you're using basically oxidative damage to kill things. And we want that. And I know like sometimes people use the terms like toxic for chemo and, um, you know, of course radiation does cause damage to your cells depending on where you're getting radiated. Like your skin cells kind of get damaged, like a big bad sunburn or your GI cells get damaged from the rays, you know, that can cause them to be kind of slicker and less effective at digesting things, which is why you end up with diarrhea or constipation. And, but I, I do encourage people to think about like, these treatments are amazing. They're extending people's lives. (laughs) Like, so we don't want to paint them in a negative light. They are useful, helpful things. Nutrition is not a cure for cancer. Treatment can cure cancer. However, the side effects of treatment can leave you feeling awful, having these side effects that are very difficult to live with. And nutrition can come along that and help to heal that, to prevent the side effects from being quite so bad. Mm -hmm. So things like probiotics, that if your GI tract is getting damaged either by chemo, by oral like pill form of chemo, by radiation, what are the things that you can do to help rebuild that? Mm-hmm. It might not be that you can do that at the same time that you're doing chemo because, you know, it's probably not going to work that well, but it could be either like you've got a chemo and then you've got three weeks off. Let's try to rebuild that back up before the next one or 
I just have to get through these, you know, six months of chemo. And then after this is over, that's when I can build it back up. Those are things like, it's just going to depend on how your chemo side effects go and what practically is possible for you and your body during those times. So I do tell, I give people freedom during that season of treatment that if all you can do is drink milkshakes or, I mean, if necessary, you know, like juices and sugar sweetened beverages and then Ensure and Boost or whatever can get you just through the treatment, that season of treatment, you can rebuild after treatment's over. So like give yourself a little bit of freedom during treatment that sometimes there's just too much and you've got to just make it through Mm -hmm. and you'll be good. Um, if it's possible though, during treatment to do some of these things that do rebuild, that's great. There is actually a product, um, and what is it called? I'm losing it on my mind, but anyway, it essentially helps to rebuild your GI tract. So for people who have severe diarrhea, so there are some oral chemos that cause a lot of diarrhea. They can't even tolerate, you know, like high fiber foods and things like that. This particular product has been shown through like three weeks of using it twice a day. And it's not nutritionally dense. Like this isn't a calorie supplement. This is a product that's been designed specifically to heal your GI tract. Um, And they designed it for astronauts. And then they're like, well, hey, people in chemo have some of the same issues. Um, So that's helpful. I think probiotics can be helpful, you know. (laughs) And But working with the medical team to figure out, is this going to be helpful or is this, like based on my individual treatment regimen, is this going to, you know, cause more trouble now and should I wait on it? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, you know, antioxidant supplements, like high dose supplements, I mean, generally, I don't think anyone should take those anyway, but especially during treatment, we don't recommend it, but it's good to eat antioxidant foods. And sometimes I find people get that mixed message from their medical team is that their medical team says, no, we don't want you to drink green tea because it has antioxidants. No, 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 no. Like, we're, when we say avoid antioxidants, we mean avoid high doses of antioxidants that are high enough to counteract treatment. The amount of antioxidants that are in foods is the perfect amount for your body to use. Um, so eating foods with antioxidants is great. We like that. Same thing with probiotics, right? Like there's no risk to eating probiotic dense foods. If you're going to take a probiotic supplement and you're having GI issues, that's something you definitely need to work with your medical team on because sometimes that could cause more problems than it helps. So you you don't want to do that kind of out on your own. The other thing, and you might be able to speak more to this, I have a hard time because I don't like spend a lot of time recommending probiotic supplements. It's the, again, the Wild West type of situation where I'm like, oh yeah, probiotics might be helpful. But lots of probiotics probably aren't helpful because they're worthless products. And I have a hard time figuring out, like, how can my patients get a good quality probiotic so that if they're going to give it a trial, it's a fair trial and not like they're using some placebo product. Yeah. And so, I mean, and I just generally talk to the pharmacist. I don't know. I don't know who it is. And I don't have strong opinions on brands or, you know, those types of things. So I'm curious what, how you do that with your patients. Yeah. No, I, I, a lot of it honestly has been, um, trial and error. I've tried them on myself. I've tried them with patients and I stick to like a few different brands. Like I like Claire labs. I like the, 
uh, garden of like life doctor formulated probiotics. I like, um, you know, the bio cult ones have worked really well. I've had good success with Floristore. So I have like this very small group of probiotic supplements that I'll recommend based on the quality and based on the, the continued success that I've had with clients and based on lab testing that they've done from third-party testers like consumer labs where they say like, this actually has 30 CFUs per bottle. Right. Um, so I've kind of like dedicated my career to this type of stuff. So it, but if you didn't like, and if you, you know, there's, there would really be no way to know because it, it is, it's an unregulated industry. So yeah. Yeah, that's and that's really helpful to know about the antioxidant side of of things of when you are going through treatment of a just trying to get what you can and making sure you're not malnourished. You know, I see that with a lot of patients who are dealing with chronic disease like Parkinson's and and you know, neurological disorders, they might try like a keto diet or something like that that can actually leave them undernourished and losing weight which that is not a good scenario for your body to fight cancer or to fight some sort of illness, like just very simply put. So I agreed. Yeah. And you <laughs> me know, no fan of anymore. keto, me no fan of keto. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a whole nother discussion, but we could just leave it at that. That's probably more mm-hmm. effective. So last question for you is what is your favorite childhood memory with food? Oh, Well, so I grew up in California and my parents, mostly my dad, like they planted all kinds of, and we were just in a regular suburban, like we didn't have a lot of land, but we had like apricot trees and almond trees and lemon trees and tangerine trees and apple trees, like in our regular yard. And so I grew up thinking that was normal. that it would be tangerine season and we would have the most amazing tangerines and we had lemons and like apricots. And now I live in North Carolina. Apricots are super hard to find like good ones. So the, from my childhood memories, I think that really helped me like appreciate good, fresh food. But interestingly, like now I live in North Carolina, people here are crazy about tomatoes when it's like grow your own tomato season. And when I grew up in California, we didn't grow tomatoes. We picked the hardest tomatoes in the grocery store because I think our knives were dull and so easier to cut the hard ones. And so I never knew what a good tomato tasted like until I moved to North Carolina and started working and my clients would bring me tomatoes from their gardens. And I'd be like, do they think I don't have enough food? But they're just being so nice and generous and sharing from their like extras, you know. And so I guess from a childhood, like, um, you know, experiencing good tasting, nutritious food, it's like that's how you learn to eat nutritious. It should taste good. Like you shouldn't Mm. be forcing yourself to like swallow things that don't taste good to you. Nutritious eating should be delicious. Um, so yeah, I have very fond memories of all these amazing foods that we would grow in our yard. Raspberries was a big deal. Mm, (laughs) My favorite. Um, yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing and thank you for coming on today and sharing your expertise and such a refreshing mindset. I think for people who maybe know someone with cancer or might you know, have been affected by cancer. I think there's just so much out there and it can be so overwhelming and stressful. And I think you bring so much light and balance to this space from nutrition perspective that is also evidence-based. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to come on here. 
Yeah, this was so fun and informative. I learned a lot from you too. So thanks for having me. You're welcome, Julie. Well, have a great rest of your day. If you're interested in working one-on-one with me or applying to my group coaching program, you can go to nutritionrewired.com where you can also find my gut-friendly cookbooks. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, don't forget to share the health. 